So, uh, thought-provoking, maybe, question. What's involved in preparing to run a race? And that question is only half rhetorical. I actually have very few ideas what's involved in that. Um, I, I assume you train a lot. You maybe change what you're eating. You buy some fancy shoes. If you're one of those people, maybe you get like sweat-wicking, friction-free clothing, something like that, make weird smoothies. Um, but it's a process, right? You, you do stuff to get to a level where you can compete at, at that elevated level. Um, and, and so that makes me wonder, what if you knew that upon completing that race, which you had um, changed so much to prepare for, you knew that upon crossing the finish line you would be immediately disqualified. That your time would be stricken from the record, that your name would be removed from the roles of those who had run, you'd be escorted off the premises in ignominy. Um, would that just be a touch discouraging? Uh, discouragement saps energy, it drains joy, it paralyzes action. Now, uh, there are some kinds of people, honestly, I think the kinds who are running around training for races, who might actually run the race anyway, knowing they'd be disqualified just to stick it to the man, to, for, for spite itself, to prove themselves. Um, so I, I recognize that that's a thing. Um, and you could probably do that for the duration of a race, but I don't know if you could do that for the duration of your life. Uh, for, the, for the duration of your race, you run on earth, bent under the weight of eternity, knowing you would be disqualified at the finish line. I don't know if there's anyone who could run that race just on the energy provided by spite alone. So I, I want to read from God's word today. Um, Isaiah 56. I'm going to look at 1 through 8. If you're rocking a pew Bible, as am I today, that's going to be on page 616. But it'll be also up on the screen for us. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Amen. This is God's word. What I am hoping we will understand and appreciate at the end of this is that neither your damage nor your descent disqualifies you from the full participation in God's salvation damage, what's happened to you, your descent, where you came from, none of it will disqualify you from full participation in the salvation that God offers. That's where I want to head, but to get there, uh, I want to walk together through wh what God 
through Isaiah was saying to these people uh, who originally received these words to understand it from their place so that it can mean the most to us and ours. So just to, to go right off the bat, what's the first thing that comes up here? What's he saying? Um, and, and I put it like this. Because of God's salvation, we live as God's people. That's what we're seeing in these first couple verses. Verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. And my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does it, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Isaiah is delivering this, this oracle of God to the people of God at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel was under attack by Assyria, uh, facing death and exile at their hands, and then the southern kingdom of Judah would soon fall to Babylon and face death and exile at theirs as well. Um, and I think in the spirit, Isaiah, he knows that these words are going to matter to um, not just the people of his time and the near future when Judah would face Babylon, um, but outward to our time as well. So uh, on its face, just thus far, looking as how this opens, uh, we have a message from God to his people saying, soon my salvation is coming. My righteousness will be revealed, and so because of that, live as my people. Keep justice, do righteousness, keep the Sabbath. Not profane it. Keep your hands from evil, and blessed or happy will you be if you do these things. This is joyful. You get to join the communion of God's people and live knowing that though times are tough, God's salvation will soon come. So this is a word of encouragement. That's what this passage sets out to do. It's meant to, to encourage the people who receive it. And there's a lot of action verbs in this. Have you noticed that? The key word is keep. We hear that one several times. Keep justice. Do righteousness. It's this idea of guarding or holding or persevering. There's a sense of endurance in the face of living life differently, holy, set apart for God, running a lifelong race. And there's also a, a sense in the text that this is done in the face of significant discouragement. Um, there's some tension we see in the text um, because God says his salvation is coming soon. And you offer that encouragement because things are tough now, generally speaking. If you go into the lunchroom at work and there's a sign up saying, don't slide on your stomach like a penguin on cafeteria trays across the aisles, you know there's a story there. Like if they put up a sign, something happened. Um, and so if God's saying, guys, live as my people, my salvation is coming soon, it's because there's a story there. These people are discouraged. And I want to impress intentionally on the order of operations here, um, both because it's, I think, what the passage demonstrates and also because it's theologically significant. Uh, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Because of God's salvation, we live as God's people. Because even under the law, uh, God's grace came first. The Ten Commandments is prefaced with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, I saved you, now live as my people, essentially. And so here again, the word of the Lord comes saying the same thing. I know you're discouraged. My salvation is coming. Keep the faith. I will save you. Keep living as my people. So that's our setup. That's how this passage begins. This is what shapes the entire argument that comes, this, this injunction. Because of my salvation, live as my people. But it also sets up our difficulty, our challenge, our problem, because we tend to lose hope in God's salvation when we fear disqualification from it. Because all of this stuff is good. God's salvation is coming, yay. Unless when God's salvation comes, it won't be for you. 
if you're not on the list, if you don't make the cut. And that's what verse 3 says. Let no foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. What's being said here? We have these two characters, these two representative groups, foreigners and eunuchs. Um, people who haven't had enough circumcised on one side and people who've had too much taken off on the other. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that today. <laughs> You know, no promises, actually, on that last part. <laughs> and if you're familiar with your old covenant, you know something that these two groups have in common. Neither is permitted in the assembly of Israel. Neither may come before the Lord in his temple. Deuteronomy 23 lays it out for both. Both are disqualified from the life of corporate worship. And this isn't without cause or purpose. Incidentally, the law here is revealing the holiness of God. Acting as our teacher and tutor because the people of God are distinct. They are not like all the other nations. They are a specific people set apart for God who live and act and worship a certain way. The people of God are pure and undefiled. God's people are whole and intact. This is what the law is testifying to. This is the standard. The people of God are to be perfect because their God is. So these two groups cry out, the foreigner that surely the Lord will separate me from his people, and the eunuch, behold, I am a dry tree. And so our challenge is laid out. It, because of God's salvation, we live as his people, but we fear that we're disqualified in some way for any reason. If that's how we feel, if because we don't measure up, we can lose hope in that promised salvation. We lose the will, the fire to live as or to identify as his people. And so sometimes in our discouragement, we sit out the race. And so it raises a question, what then is the answer to this very inescapable eternal human dilemma, um, which has been real in existence since Genesis 3, but Moses and the law brought into crystal clarity focus for us. Well, the answer is this, God says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, behold, I am a dry tree. Because right now, God through Isaiah is not talking about his law. He's talking about his grace, his salvation. Because he knew, Isaiah knew, you know, I know, um, and any Israelite who had read the Old Covenant knew that it wasn't the law that saved, it was God that did. God is proclaiming that a day is coming when his righteousness will be revealed apart from the works of the law, and he's telling us that on that day, neither your damage nor your descent will disqualify you from God's salvation. And that's the second point I want to drive home. Neither your descent nor your damage will disqualify you from God's salvation. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, ministering to him, loving him, being his servants, keeping his Sabbaths, they will be brought to his holy mountain, made joyful in his house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on his altar, and his house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. What's happened to you or where you have come from will not disqualify you from God's salvation. If you're broken, if you're the wrong kind of person, fine. Live as if you were God's now because the salvation that is coming is for you. 
the reformer John Calvin on this passage wrote, if the question be put, can men obtain righteousness and salvation by their own works, the reply will be easy, for the Lord does not offer salvation to us as if it had been anticipated by our merits. For on the contrary, we are anticipated by him but offers himself freely to us and only demands that we on our part draw near to him. Since therefore he willingly invites us, since he offers righteousness through free grace, we must make every effort not to be deprived of so great a benefit. Isaiah knows that Deuteronomy 23 exists when he writes this. God does as well. The law is righteously witnessing to the unapproachable holiness of God. But to that... To the discouraged and downtrodden and disqualified, God adds, live as my people anyway. Because the day is coming when that which at this moment you may not draw near to, what you cannot approach on that day, will instead by my righteousness draw near to you. And either your brokenness or who your dad was or wasn't is going to matter. In these two groups, there are represented the sum totality of the outcasts. People who aren't Jews and Jews who don't make the cut. And everything in between. And to them, God says, don't lose hope. Wait to see what I have coming. And it does not end there because, yes, neither our damage nor our descent disqualifies us from God's salvation, but also all of God's people will participate fully in God's salvation. All of God's people will participate fully in God's salvation. Why is that significant? Why bother to make that point in addition? Because even if we hear and accept that previous idea that we won't be disqualified, that where we came from, that what happened to us isn't going to just have us kicked off preemptively, I think there remains a heavy doubt unanswered. Fine, God lets us in in a cosmic scale variant of the participation trophy, right? You can partake in God's salvation, but in terms of being God's people, well, you can be the second tier version of that, the, the bronze model, if you will. Now, of course, theologically, we probably don't believe that, but do our hearts. Are there levels in Christianity and salvation? Does Jesus offer a bronze package redemption? Um, I wanted to stay in ancient Israel for the majority of this message until the end, but I feel like it's necessary to bring it forward to us for just a moment so that we can really wrestle with this issue. Um, are there levels in Christianity? Again, theologically, probably we think no. But do our hearts believe that? Um, do any of us remember the good old days when you could tell who was and wasn't a Christian by whether or not they had tattoos? <laughs> Uh, or by their hair length, or by the presence of a bonnet, like not one of the, the dirty trollop bonnets, one of the good proper Christian ones. Um, and you know, maybe back in those days, God was just big enough to save those hooker bonnet hippies. Um, but, but upon doing so, immediately some things needed to change, right? Um, that was the scene. Now, um, of course, that was active, explicit discouragement. Right? You're not fully God's because you're wrong somehow. There's something off about you, you're foreign, damaged, whatever. Um, I think we, the American church, do less of that now than we once did by the grace of God. Um, and so that practice has changed but has the human heart because the discouragement we're reading about in Isaiah was no doubt buttressed on occasion by outward explicit discouragement. You know, someone saying, go home, roomy britches, no eunuchs in the temple. Uh, but, but what we read in this passage is not external explicit discouragement, it's internal implicit discouragement. 
let not the eunuch say, let not the foreigner say, this is God talking to you about how you talk to you. Do we ever feel like we're the wrong kind, the second tier of Christian? Maybe you come from a tradition that was more, hey kid, take off your hat and get a haircut. Um, And now in 2018, you're the bad guy. Uh, Real first-tier Christians don't think about those things. In fact, they're so free in Jesus that sometimes their eyebrow rings just shoot off their heads because the pressure from their skinny jeans are so tight. Um, And you're there in the pews. Well, it's not a pew because, you know, I mean, that's also a second-tier Christian thing. We're in chairs now. Um, And you're not in the sanctuary. You're in the auditorium because, again, you even want people to come to church on Sunday. Um, And you're dodging these eyebrow rings in your 10-year-old wranglers wondering if God even loves you because you don't know what shiplap is. Um, That story is only half autobiographical. Um, Have you ever felt, not someone told you, have you ever felt marginalized uh, because you came to Christ late in life? Because you don't know the lingo. You don't have the Bible study answers. Have you ever felt marginalized because you came to Christ early in life? You don't have the good conversion story. You know, ain't no one making a movie about how you went from four-year-old unregenerate toddler to four-year-old regenerate toddler. Like, you know, God saved me from my pixie stick addiction. No one's interested. No one wants to hear that story. Do you feel like somehow that makes your Christian experience less authentic, second tier somehow? single in a church that feels like it's running marriage retreats and couple seminars every other weekend. I mean, maybe there's a single ministry, but it's there to get you married and fix you, right? Or married. Did you sell out a heroic life of kingdom service to settle for the bourgeoisie American dream? Are you equally yoked? Did you get married in City Hall because Jesus can't see what happens there? That's not true, by the way. We'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but... <laughs> us is a fear that even if brought near to God by God, there will remain some restriction from the fullness of God's grace. And if we are not fully convinced that we are fully God's, then we will never fully love him, serve him, or fully live. When we read those verses, four to seven, um, did you get a sense of the kind of inclusion God was planning on? To the eunuchs, a place in his home with a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that can't die out. Um, fallen mankind has eternity in his heart from Eden. But death stalks him due to the debt that we owe to sin. And so, as, as a habit, man tries to make himself immortal by other means, and sometimes we do that with children, rather, missing the point, I think. Like Babel, we try to make a great name for ourselves, uh, secure a legacy, but legacies crumble. Family trees wither or get cut down or get grafted in elsewhere. Uh, Children and family are a blessing and a good gift from God, but they are no foundation for immortality. They're no better than shifting sand when they play that role that they were never designed to. And so God says to those excluded from the tree of Israel due to their damage, I will bring you into my home and give you a name that is imperishable, an eternal legacy. And to the foreigner, those who in Paul in Ephesians 2 describes as aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, to them, God says, one day I will bring you to my holy mountain and make you joyful in my house of prayer. 
Your burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Uh, that's Levitical. That's priestly. It would be nice just to be within spitting distance of the walls of God's temple. And God says, you will be priests. To the outcast, God says, everything that is missing from you, in you, that you think you are doing without, you will have the better version of. And so live as one of God's people because his salvation is coming and when it doesn't, either your damage nor your descent will disqualify you from it and your participation, your inclusion will be full and complete, unalloyed, untainted, and eternal. And it closes with verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. Uh, That's a title, by the way, the way it's structured in the scripture. This is giving God a name. This is saying the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. This is who he is. This is what he declares. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So consider this, my friends. Um, Israel would be scattered too. It would be outcast as well. After this moment, the day was soon coming when they would be exiles. The northern kingdom in Assyria, the southern kingdom in Babylon, due to sin and rebellion and abominable wickedness, even the people who had it all together on paper, they were disqualified under the law. They broke it. Exiled, smashed, and rebuked. God says to them, when my salvation comes... When my righteousness is revealed, hear me, hear this proclamation of the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. I will gather you and others. He says, I will gather more. I will gather further than you think. I will gather even these, the foreigner and the eunuch. The Israelites, papers and pedigree, they were outcasts too. We all are. Um, If there are no tears in salvation, I can't think why there would be for damnation either. And so to the original hearers, to God's special covenant people, this should have been a word of incredible encouragement as well. This bad stuff is going to happen, but God will save you. And he will gather you. And he's going to be saving so hard, it's going to hit eunuchs and foreigners in the backsplash. Of course you guys are good. Because of God's salvation, live as God's people. You won't be disqualified from his salvation and you will participate fully in it. The last thing missing from these explicit statements in this argument I'm trying to build with you is just the question of how we become God's people in actuality because it's been assumed we live as God's people because the salvation is coming and we won't be disqualified from that salvation and it will be full to us but when at what point do we actually become God's people and, but it's, it's been implied by the text. Um, I think it's there present implicitly in the argument. Because of God's salvation, we are God's people. Um, but I'm going to state it slightly different today for reasons that will soon be apparent. I'm going to say it like this. Because of Jesus, we are God's people. Where do I get this from? To start with, from our text. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So, last year, if you were here, you might remember that I was unpleasant, distracted, and perpetually tired. That's because I was in a Hebrew class. <laughs> so, first of all, for all of those who, um, who bore that burden by proxy, thank you for bearing with me. Um, may I attempt to make amends by sharing some small portion of the fruit of that labor for which we both suffered. Uh, for soon my salvation will come. Ki karova Yeshua ti labo. For near my salvation is coming, is my, my clunky wooden translation of that. Um, did you catch that bit in the middle? Yeshua ti. The ti at the end is one version of the possessive pronoun, mine, my. Uh, in Hebrew, you drop that at the end of the word to say, that's my thing. Cup ti, my cup. <laughs> 
Um, Yeshua T is coming. My Yeshua is coming. And if you're a nerd, you might already know that Yeshua is the name that the angel instructed Mary to give her son in Luke chapter 1. Our New Testaments were written in Greek, and Jesus is the Greek way you say this name, Yeshua, so that's how we know him best. Thus says the Lord, live as my people, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my Jesus will come, and my righteousness will then be fully revealed. And so we can go back through every point we've made. Because of Jesus, we live as God's people. Neither your damage nor your descent will disqualify you to Jesus. All of God's people will participate fully in Jesus. And because of this, because of Jesus, we are God's people. Um, now, now, don't get me wrong. We don't need to retranslate what Isaiah 56 says. Um, just to throw Jesus in there, Yeshua is a good Hebrew word that is rightly translated as salvation. Um, but let's not miss the fact that when God sent his son to reconcile all of humanity to himself, this was the name he chose. Let's not miss that Jesus' life and ministry were spent preaching and doing these very things Isaiah prophesied would happen when God's Yeshua came. In Mark 11, we see the money changers setting themselves up as the gatekeepers of the temple because we've decided that the temple will only take local currency, not your foreign garbage. So when the foreigners come to kneel in obedience to the one true God of the universe, as they've been commanded to do, as it is right for them to do, as God has prophesied will happen, as they come to be obedient to that call, these money changers say, yes, you can do that, but first pay us for the privilege. You can come to God for us, but you've got to grease my palms first. And so we come to that beautiful and treasured part of the Bible. <laughs> Does anyone remember the game, What Would Jesus Do? You know, you have a problem, what would Jesus do? Because of Mark 11, one of the possible answers is kick over tables and chase people around with a homemade whip. <laughs> How awesome is that? <laughs> the religious establishment had set itself up as a gatekeeper, crafting boundaries, erecting walls between even the properly converted foreigner and the house of God and profiting off the exchange. Jesus could be very gentle. We see that time again in the Gospels. That day he was not. And Isaiah 56 comes from his lips. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Isaiah has the jab, then he finishes him off with Jeremiah, but you have made it a den of robbers, he says. Mark 11.8, and when the chief priests and the scribes heard this, they sought for a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. I don't know why he just quoted Isaiah and Jeremiah to them. When God came to gather the outcasts as they themselves had once been gathered, the salvation promised was met by the religious leaders, not with rejoicing, but with hatred. And so the salvation God appointed for his people died on a cross outside of Jerusalem, rejected by those he had come to save. But we know it did not end there. In Acts 8, earlier together today, we read about an Ethiopian, a foreigner and a eunuch, coming back from Jerusalem, having worshipped God to the extent that he was allowed and able to do so. And he was reading God's word, Isaiah 53, actually, just a few turns of the scroll back from where we are today. And, and he was reading and wondering in his heart, who is this man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, led like a lamb to the slaughter and denied justice in his humiliation, taken away from the face of the earth? Who is this man whose wounds, God says, will heal me? And Philip, a servant of Jesus, 
a witness to the risen Christ, a recipient of the same gospel we ourselves have received, is privileged to come before this man and share the good news of Jesus with him. How Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. And here's the fun part for us today. In doing so, in leading this foreigner and eunuch to Christ, baptizing him, he ends up making manifest, visible, concrete in creation how completely Jesus has also fulfilled Isaiah 56. After hearing the gospel, this eunuch, this foreigner says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. Not a dang thing. Praise God in Christ. God's message through Isaiah to the original readers was to wait, to take heart, to not be discouraged and live as one of God's people because Jesus was coming. And that the God they could not draw near to would instead draw near to them. And despite everything disqualifying about them, he would accept them. To be honest, I'm not sure if that message really needs updated all that much for our experience. Except for maybe instead of saying, he's coming, we get to joyfully proclaim, he's coming back. Comforted by this prophetic word, if they could wait then, can we wait now knowing what we know? Having encountered Jesus, having seen how history and the world pivoted that day outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so we come back to Ephesians 2, 12. Remember that once you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If we should be just and righteous and keep our hands from evil because his salvation is coming, how much more should we now that it has come? We have received it and are recipients of that matchless grace. And so let's, let's, let's do, uh, as, as New Covenant believers, um, what is pleasing to God. Let's rest in him. Let's participate fully because full participation means yes we're not disqualified but it also means that we're not exempt we're on the field the God who gathers the outcasts has made you a priest is promised to offer the spiritual sacrifice of your whole life to him and through Christ it will be found acceptable God's people brought here by the blood of Christ Jesus is fully yours There is no bronze package in his love for you. As you wait for his return, your final vindication and glorification, take heart. Be of upcast countenance and good cheer. As you wait, as you live as God's people, know that when the salvation, God's Christ, my Jesus returns, the outcast and the outsider and the damaged will not be forsaken. You will not be forsaken. I hope it's a comfort to those of us in this room who may be discouraged. Uh, because we're less than fully convinced at times that we are full recipients of a complete grace. And I pray that you will in turn be an encouragement to others who are not in this room today. This week, next week, as God wills it, um, to people who are fully convinced they are entirely alienated from the love of God, disqualified, who feel so disqualified from grace that they've convinced themselves it's not even worth aspiring to. May you be an encouragement to them. May this be a house of prayer for all peoples. Amen. Father God, what a random, beautiful, wonderful assortment of outcasts you've gathered here today. Thank you for each of them. Thank you that we are near to you because you have come near to us. 
thank you for your salvation. We thank you for Jesus. God, lift us up to where we are downcast. By your spirit and your word, convince our troubled hearts and unquiet spirits that if we have you, we have everything. And that, it, and that if we have you at all, you have us fully. And we cannot be part here is because you are not a God of half measures. Father, we praise you. We worship you. We obey your will for our lives and, and live in your name, in your power and hope, and by your Son, Jesus. Amen.